This morning's scripture is found in the gospel as recorded by Matthew, chapter 21. Matthew 21, and we'll start reading at verse 33. Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 33. Here, another parable, there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about, and digged a winepress in it, and built a tower, and let it out to the husbandmen, and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servant to the husbandmen, that they might receive the fruit of it. And the husbandmen took his servant, and beat one, and killed another, and stone another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto him likewise. But last of all the servants, last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the hire. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? And the last verse they say unto him, he will miserably destroy these wicked men, and he will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruit in their seasons. May the Lord bless the reading and doers of his word. The difference between how I used to think and what I now think it's the difference that Christ makes in a life. The difference between how people without Christ think and what God thinks is scary. And in the end, what they believe will condemn them to a Christless eternity. There's a lot at stake. And of course, it all depends on how you think. Think well, choose well, live well. Think poorly, foolishly, according to the wisdom of this world, and you live foolishly. Praise God for the difference that he makes in life. This morning I want us to continue our quest into a better, deeper, more productive understanding of stewardship. As I said to you before, stewardship is very important no matter who you are, where you are, or what you face, because stewardship is the answer to why we are here and what God desires of us. If you have your copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn back to Matthew 21 that section beginning with verse 33 about the parable 
of those wicked vine dressers. And of course, we're going to end up, verse 38, when the vine dressers saw the sun, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Father, thank you so much again for this day. Thank you for your love for us again. Thank you for correcting our vision. We used to be in darkness. We couldn't see what life was about. We didn't know what it is that we didn't know. And we didn't know the peril that awaited us, that the judgment of God abode upon us, Uh, We didn't know how to escape, nor did we have the ability to do so. As Jesus correctly pointed out, that unless a person is born again, born from above, they cannot, um, they don't have within them the ability to put off entering into your kingdom. But Father, in your great mercy, you made a way. And that way is our Lord, and we're grateful this morning that regardless of where we are and who we are and what we face, we never face it alone because you are with us, and you strengthen us, and you guide us. And Father, in the end, you bless us. And so we're happy to sit at your feet and glean truths from your word, and we ask that you will quiet our hearts so that we can hear from heaven and that you will steal the voice of the wicked one and any incursions that he might want to make to steal the thunder that is your word. Bind him that he will have no part. And of course, Father, uh, as we hear from you, even before we take it all in, we make a commitment right now that we'll give you the praise and the honor and the thanksgiving. Because we ask all of these things in the matchless name of our lovely Lord and Savior, our Lord Jesus. In his name we ask and thank you. Amen. Stewardship. Last week I said to you that stewardship was the fact that understanding that God is is the owner. He owns all of the people and the purposes and the possessions and everything. It's all his And we are simply managers of it. Two weeks ago, we talked about the hands of a steward and what those hands are busy doing, returning to the Lord according to how he has entrusted to us. Last week, we talked about, did I say the hands? Last week, two weeks ago, we talked about the heart of a steward, okay? And I I have my glasses on. I still can't see. The heart of a steward. Last week, we talked about the hands of a steward and what... We are about this morning. I want us to talk about the head of a steward and how we think. And we don't think like the people who don't know Christ thinks. And this morning, I want us to consider 10 principles. Yes, more than three. 10 principles for stewardship success. And if I don't finish today, then Lord willing and the creek don't rise, we'll finish next week. I almost titled it, How to Take the Stew Out of Stewardship. I know that sometimes people get really animated 
when you talk about stewardship. In fact, there are three wrong views of stewardship that I put down. Uh, if you are following along in notes, uh, you will see there. Number one, uh, wrong view comes from seeing stewardship as merely fundraising. You say, well, he's going to talk about money now. Let me shut my ears and my heart down until he gets done. It's just about raising money so that he can have a bigger salary or they can do more, buy him a car, buy him whatever. It's all about the Benjamins. And that's not true. Back next week when we look at our budget and you say, well, you know, pastor's salary hasn't changed in three years. No, it hasn't. <laughs> and we did that on purpose, amen, because it's not about the money. It's not fundraising. Sometimes people view stewardship uh, is falsely because there's an abuse of the term, right? Uh, you hear all of the people that talk about how much money the pastor needs to make, and I told you about uh, the lady who went to this church there in Flint and she said they took up the offering the first time and then, you know, they sing a, a song and then they go in the back and count it up and then they come out and they pass the bucket around again uh, because, you know, the pastor said he believed that there was another couple of thousand dollars uh, in that congregation. She said, I wanted to assure him it was not in my purse, but he wasn't hearing it. And so he would have dismissed them until they had come up with that $2,000. And sometimes people, they, they hear about these kinds of stories or they've been a part of those kinds of stories. And they don't want to hear anything about stewardship. I have a, I had a friend there in Michigan uh, whose wife was a member of a rather high-end church where people, you know, it was like uh, the red carpet affair when you came in. Uh, so that people can, I mean, they can marvel at uh, your outfits. And he said, you know, they wear a different suit every Sunday. He says, I only got one suit. I can go to, only go to church once a year if I went to that church. And he said, they, they, they're always obsessed with money. But I assured him if he came to our church in the morning, I didn't care if he wore a suit or not. And number two, I would never ask him to give any money to the church. In fact, when we passed our offering plate, we told all the visitors, we don't want you to put any money in the offering plate because we're not after your money. Just put, fill out a visitor's card and put that in the offering plate. We are just graceful, grateful that you allowed us to be your hosts today. A third reason that people have a bad view of stewardship is because they mistakenly see the possessions as permanently theirs. This is my stuff. This is my money. The preacher's after my money. Well, much of what people feel can be summed up in a cartoon uh, that I put up for you uh, on the next slide there. Uh, you've probably seen this before. The preacher is getting ready to baptize Charles. No relation to Charles Porter. He says, Charles, when I baptize you, everything that goes under belongs to God. You see, <laughs> God don't need that. <laughs> and some people think like that. This is my money, and I don't really feel like I should have to share my money with God. I read this quote. I, I neglected to put down where I got the quote from in my notes. I apologize. But it says, if we are confused and frustrated in our stewardship of financial resources, it may be because we see them primarily as permanent personal assets 
that someone's trying to take away from us, hence that cartoon. But when we see stewardship as the management of God's resources instead, then the stew is removed from stewardship. We're just trying to figure out how to live the life that God wants us to live. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, be careful how you live. Not as fools, but as those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity for doing good in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly. Give a lot of thought to what you're doing. But he says, try to understand what the Lord wants you to do. We're all trying to get a better understanding of what God wants from us, why we're here, and what we are to do while we are here. I told you once before that I've put up a couple of um, things. Someone took a little survey of children uh, and asked them for some of the advice that they might give. Patrick, who's 10 years old, says, my advice is never trust a dog to watch your food. (laughs) Michael, and of course I can identify with this one, he says, when your dad is mad and asks you, do I look stupid? Don't answer him. (laughs) Nothing good is ever going to come out of that. I can speak from experience to that. But then he adds, he says, never tell your mom that her diet is not working. I mean, if you want to eat there again, you may want to uh, hold off on that. Randy, age nine, says stay away from prunes, especially if you're in school. Right? It's not, not good. Kyoyo says never hold a dustbuster and a cat at the same time. I can imagine. I don't have a cat. I've never had a cat, but I can imagine what it's like. Those of you that are cat lovers, yeah, you know. Naomi, who is 15, says, if you want a kitten, start out by asking for a horse, right? And just work your way down, and you should be able to get what you want. Lauren says, felt markers are not good to use as lipstick. (laughs) Joel says, don't pick on your sister when she's holding a baseball bat. That's not a good idea. Because Eileen, there's something about this cat thing. Never try to baptize a cat. It's not a pretty, not a pretty thing. Well, when it comes to stewardship, you know, we want to, to be wise in what we do, and, and that depends on how we think. So we want to think correctly and in a way that allows us to understand what God says and what we ought to do. And so when I look at this particular parable that Jesus gave, Remember, he's giving parables about the kingdom and and what it's going to be like, the character of those who are parts of the kingdom. And, and of course, he's dealing with the Jews. These, These parables that he's giving here really are addressed to the religious leaders, and they understand in the end that it's about them, and so they're not happy. But... He gives these, this parable here, and in it there are ten principles that I want us to glean. Principle number one is found in the first part of verse 33. I want you to notice here, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 33, that he says here another parable. <clears throat> there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a, and, in it, and built a tower. And then he leased it out to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, 
the, the first thing I noticed, and I put down, I realized that, that I'm blessed with many benefits. God has really blessed me. He's enriched me. And I was sharing with someone uh, last week that, you know, the, our kids, when they were in school, the seniors at that school always, for their senior trip, they always went and spent about two weeks in Europe. And they went to uh, several different countries there. And he said when they came back, he said, man, they'd be ready to fall on their knees and kiss the ground because they're back in America. And that attitude is because you don't realize how, how well off you are and how much God has blessed you until you see what somebody else is doing and what someone else has. You know the old saying, I, I cried because I had no shoes till I saw the man who had no feet. And I realized, you know, I, I don't have it so bad. But these people, they were especially blessed. In fact, Christ's story, or much of what he says at the beginning, sounds like what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, he says in the first five verses all I'll deal with, he says, now I will sing a song to the one I love about his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared the stones, and planted it with choice vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were wild and sour. Now, you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you have heard the case. You be the judges. What more could I have done to cultivate a rich harvest? Why did my vineyard give me wild grapes when I expected sweet ones? Later on, he says, this vineyard is the nation of Israel. I planted them. I blessed them. I gave them all of these good things. And I expected a return, but in spite of all of the benefits that they received, what I got back was paltry and worthless. And these individuals in this story, they, they received all of this. Now understand that, that the land doesn't belong to them. They occupy the land because the landowner has been very, very generous to give them that opportunity. They've been blessed with many benefits. The ability to be self-sustaining. And we all like that. Uh, this is uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and I debated whether or not to do a, a sermon on abortion again. But I will take you to Psalm 139, verse 14. Uh, Thank you, he says, this is a New Living Translation, for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is is, is marvelous, and how well I know it. I was been going through a book, Eat to Beat Disease. And as the author of the book is describing all of these incredible systems that God has put inside the body and the body's ability to heal itself and, and how uh, the immune system, in fact, the chapter this past week dealt with immunity and he describes it as a military encampment. And I'm just listening to that and go, wow, wow, wow. The body is awesome because we, it was fashioned by an awesome God. Amen. And we are the recipients of, of such wonderful blessings. But then 
Notice that it says that when he leased it to the vine dressers, he went away into a far country. He's God. He's no longer on the scene. And the second principle I want us to remember is that I forget <laughs> whom I don't see. You know, God is the one who's enriched me, but I don't see God. You know, I told you that, you know, Spurgeon, he was known to just kind of come down when they were given the offering. And as the offering plate got passed, he would walk down the aisle to see what the people were putting in the aisle. <laughs> and uh, not many people care for that. Because <laughs> he's watching what they do and what they put in. There were people who probably weren't going to put anything in, but then they saw him looking. Begrudgingly put something in there. And there were people that were only going to put a little bit in, and then they saw him. So they peeled back a couple of more and put it in. You know, and so then he walked all the way down and past all of the people and got all the way to the back, much to the annoyance of pretty much everybody. But then he said this. He said, you know, you guys don't seem like you really like the fact that, that I watched what you put in, into the offering plate. And they assured him, no, we didn't. And then he said, you know, you don't want me looking, but it doesn't seem to bother you that God sees everything that you do. And God has seen all that you put in the offering plate. Not only did he see what you put in, but he saw what's in your heart and the attitude that drove you to put in. It doesn't seem to matter to you as much that God sees because, you know, you don't see God. And so you don't think about him. And sometimes in our stewardship, we are not as capable as we could be. Well, excuse me, that's not the word I want to do. We, we aren't as adept as we could be because, you know, we, we forget that, you know, God is the one who's watching. And he sees all that we do. Brother Lawrence, in his book, Practicing the Presence of God, he points out the fact that, God, you see everything I do, and you're with me everywhere I go. There's no place I can go where you aren't there. And we forget that. Someone said, when we consider all that God has blessed us with, it's embarrassing to see how little we have done with it. Someone said that you reach midlife crisis when you compare what you vowed to do with your life with what you've actually made of it. <laughs> Someone says that life is God's gift to you. But what you make of it is your gift back to God. That's perhaps the greatest waste in the world is to have the potential God has given us and not do a thing with it. We are managers of more than money. God has blessed us. And we forget about that. The third thing is found in verse 34. He says, uh, when the vintage time drew near, the landowner, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. Now, uh, in that day, there were three types of arrangements typical. Uh, number one, there would be a situation where the landowner owned everything and he let you come in and work the land for him. He let you keep a little bit, but most of it was his. Then there were those landowners who would let you occupy the land. And he says, I expect a certain amount each time, each year from the land, regardless of what happens to you. And the third arrangement, which was the most typical arrangement, <clears throat> where the landowner would let them have the property to use 
And then he would say, return a portion of it to me. You can keep and manage the rest, but just return to me a portion. And they had agreed to do this. They had agreed upon a portion. And now the grapes have blossomed and it's time for him to get his portion. And the third thing that we don't want to miss is the fact that God expects a return on his investment. God expects something from you and from me. You see, grace, grace is God's enablement to accomplish his will. Grace isn't just something that he gives me to make me feel better until I get to heaven. No, God has strengthened me to accomplish the work, the meaningful work that he's given me to do. And that's why I want to understand what the will of God is because I want to be busy doing the thing that God has given me to do. And I find that, you know, he's, he's expecting something from me. There was a question on stewardship that uh, I used to ask all the time when I was back previously. And the question is, if God owns it all, then what on earth am I doing with it? Now, there are a lot of different ways you could preach that. <laughs> and, in fact, I have to admit that I have done a whole series on just that statement, right? And I dealt with God's ownership, and I dealt with the what, and I dealt with while I'm here on earth, and the what am I actually doing with what God has entrusted to me. But see, that's, that's, that's a stewardship question. It's, it's, it's God's, but... He's entrusted it to me to manage for his glory. So now how's it going? Peter Drucker used to say the only two questions that an organization should ask. And the first question is, what business are you in? The second question is, well, how's business? Right? If you know what you're about, you know what your mission is, then you have to ask yourself, how's it going? Am I accomplishing the mission? When I understand that I'm a steward and that God expects a return on what he's entrusted to me, then I can't just pretend that I don't know. I have to find out that I might be about the business. Notice in verse 35, there is a fourth principle. It says, the vine dressers, when they saw those servants come to get those grapes, it says they took his service and they beat one and they killed one and they stoned another one. <laughs> you know, my heart is revealed by the harvest. You know, it's like, you know how sometimes when, when you, uh, you know, kids' parents die and their parents left them, you know, some, some, some money. They go to the funeral and they cry. Buckets of tears. Then you know, they lean all over the casket. They can't stand to see them go. And they fall out. No, not mom. No. I mean, she's gone. And they, she's been gone. But no, not mom. And then after that, after the repast, they fight like them cats that have been baptized, right? And they, <laughs> why are they fighting? They're fighting over that money. That's why one person left in his will, I being a sound man spent all of it because you know just, <laughs> there ain't nothing for you to fight over 
people just get crazy when it comes to that money. But see, the heart is revealed when it comes to the money, right? God's desire is that I manage things responsibly. And then, you know, the people who recognize (laughs) that, you know, I return the first part to God. And, you know, I told you the one of the guys that I had the privilege of leading to Christ, he was my boss. Uh, his name was Victor, Victor Foxworth. And um, after uh, we did some follow-up studies, um, Victor asked me a question about tithing because, you know, he'd gone to a church. And he says, what is that? I said, well, the word tithe means a tenth, and it's returning uh, 10% to God. And he said, should I tithe? And I'm like, well, yeah. You know, I mean, you appreciate the fact that God gave you life, health, strength, you know, income, et cetera. Yeah, okay. He said, well, I'm going to tithe because we got paid that Friday. And so Monday, I said, so Victor, um, you said you was going to tithe. Did you tithe? He said, man. (laughs) He said, you know, 10%. I got to add up how much that was. He said, I said, well, I'll give half this week. <laughs> I do half next week. You know, and, and some people, it's, it's just, you know, if you didn't have it, then you wouldn't miss it. But when you get it, then something changes. And when God says, okay, just return to me my portion, you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Your portion, yeah, then we have a problem. Unfortunately, and that's how these guys were. They like now we we agreed, but now he wants his his portion, and the fight is on, as the hymn says. But it's not talking about fighting over the money. Verse thirty six is interesting because God's patience is seen in my response when I struggle with returning to him notice after verse 35 they 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 beat one they killed one they stoned one you know you would think that the owner would say okay that's enough of that just send some troops but no he he sends more he's he's patient with them he's He's waiting for them to do the right thing. He doesn't just give up on them and write them off. God is, he's so patient like that. Be grateful that he is. In fact, you know, Peter says, the only reason that you saved is because God waited. What if Christ had come back the day before you got saved? Where would you be now? Undone, right? In fact, 2 Peter 3, he says, You must not forget, dear friends, that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. And and a thousand years is like a day. He says the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return, as some people think. It's been a long time since he said he was coming back. He ain't came back yet. He says, no, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So he's giving more time for everyone to repent. Aren't you glad God waited for you? Now that doesn't mean that 
you know, if you're sitting here, you say, well, I'm going to wait till I'm 35 before I get saved. Well, in the first place, you don't know if you're going to reach 35. And the, the worst thing about that is that, you know, you may not get saved until you're 65. You say, what's so bad about that? Well, just think about it now. You're a young person. You got all of your life in front of you. You got the call of God on your life to live responsibly, to live in a mature way, to live in a way that brings glory and honor to him. And he says, to pull that off, I've given you access to all of my wisdom and, and strength. I've given you good peer mentors. I've given you a sound mind. I've given you an instruction manual. I've given you a mentor, the Holy Spirit within you. I've given you everything you need to be successful in life. In fact, I give you a guarantee. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but meditate in it day and night so that you will care for to do everything that's written in it. So then you'll make your way prosperous. Then you'll have good success. It's a guarantee. I've given you that. And you say, um, um, well, maybe one day. Right? I mean, I, I can understand that, that he wants to bless and enrich my life, but, but I'm young and stupid. I, I mean, I'm young, and I don't know what I don't know. And so I'm going to wait a minute. And, you know, like they say, people's favorite day is manana, right? Tomorrow. And so Satan knows he doesn't have to get you to deny Christ. He just said, well, just, you know, you ain't got to get serious right now. You got time. Because if you say no right now, it's a little easier to say no tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And the worst thing is you get all the way down the road and then the light bulb comes on. You say, you know, I really, really need to give my life to Christ. And look of all of the years and all of the, the stupid decisions and all of the negative consequences from the stupid decisions that are crowded into your life because you put off that decision. That's not smart. That's why Solomon says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the evil years come. When you get old and you say, well, I ain't feeling nothing no more. Because you don't have energy for anything. <clears throat> the time to receive the Lord is now. Now is the day of salvation. Notice verse 38 and 39. This gets to the crux of the matter. Verse 36 he sent more servants. They did the same to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them. He says, he says, they will they'll respect my son. That they'll reverence my son. It's like they, they'll probably just they'll probably see my son and something will go off in their heads and they say, Oh, he looked just like his dad. You know, the one that that allowed us to have this land. That allowed us to use this land. If he hadn't allowed us to use this land, we'd have nothing. But all of the stuff that we've been able to do are a direct result of the goodness of his father. And we, the least we could do as an act of appreciation is giving what we promised to give. 
That's the least we could do. You would think that that thought would have crossed their minds. No. They said, he's the heir. Let's just kill him. We kill him, we'll have it all for ourselves. We don't have to share. We don't have to give him anything. We're going to own it all. And so then they decided they were going to kill the son who pointed them to the father and who came to them to collect. You see, the stew in stewardship really is over ownership. Who owns the stuff? Whose is it? Where does the appreciation lie? For what's given to me that I didn't ask for, that I didn't deserve. You didn't ask for it. You know that, right? Because you know, when, when you were born into the world, you didn't pop up in the crib and say, uh, Dad, Mom, this is what I really want in life. Can you make sure you provide me with these things? No. You didn't know anything about anything. You knew how to lie, right? Ah! What's wrong with nothing? You just lying. Right? I mean, you knew how to lie. All babies are liars. <clears throat> but that's because that's they all have a sin nature, like the adults. <laughs> right? So we're all sinners by nature and by choice. But that's all, they, that's all they know. And everything else was given to them. Everything else they were taken care of. They were, there were provisions made that they didn't earn or necessarily deserve. But it was given out of love. And that's why when you get older, say so you want to return to your parents for the kindnesses that they heaped upon you. They should say to the people that, you know, if your parents did nothing else right, they had you. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. Be grateful. God allowed them to bring you here. And regardless of the circumstances, maybe they're not perfect circumstances because there are no perfect people in the world. But they got that right. They obeyed God and they brought you here. <laughs> Whether they knew they were doing it as an act of obedience to God or not. God knew. And so you, you want to be able to, to acknowledge his stewardship. Now I'm going to do something that will make the hair stand up on the back of the heads of all of the discipleship people. The people that took 2-7. Because I'm going to put this chart up here on the next slide. And you're going to say, oh, yeah, this chart describes stewardship. And in all of this outworking, all of this underpinnings, the goal is to, to make Christ the very center of your life. Everything in life revolves around Christ in every area of your life, regardless of what it is. It's to point to Christ. And you ought to display Christ. That's why you're here. You're here to, to learn and understand God's will so that you can make Christ known in your, in your marriage. You can make Christ known in your family, your child weary. You can make Christ known on your job. You can make him known everywhere you go, even in your date life, especially in your date life. You can make Christ known. And point people to him. You know, it's just like, it's like, you know, when my mom was alive, when I was single, I was a kid, okay. And she used to make, 
used to make those chocolate cakes, you know, at Christmas time. And uh, we would make it by hand. The stuff you buy in a can. Well, anyway, it's easy. But we would make it by hand, the big bowl, man. And then we would make the layers. And then we get this big wooden spoon. And we would dump the chocolate on the cake. And we spread it out, right? And we get some more. And we go down the sides and all around. You cover that cake in chocolate, but, oh, you still got some more icing left. So what do you do? You get more, you smear it all over the place. And, it, you know, the cake is this tall, and the, with the icing, is like this. <laughs> it's good stuff, right? Uh, now, so I know some of you don't like chocolate, but, you know, when you get saved, you'll be okay. But, but you know, it's just, you you cut into that thing with the, with the cake cutter or a knife or whatever y'all use. You know, we was in the hood. It was a knife, okay? But you cut it, and you lift it up, and and the icing followed the, the knife, right? And you put it on the plate, and the, the icing oozes all over the plate. And then when you put it next to your other food, if you have grits with your cake, that's gross, I know. <laughs> but whatever it is you have with the cake, some of y'all, you're going to take that home with you. Gonna say, I cannot believe he would have grits with cake. Right, anyway, <laughs> but you know, the when you put the cake on the plate, the icing, it just kind of touches everything. Everything it touches gets sweeter, right? Right? And that's just, that's just, that's the blessing of God. That's the blessing of God. God's, God's blessing as it, as it falls on you as you walk in obedience to him, it, it begins to, to cover you and, and all of the people who touch your life and who get next to you. Some of the sweetness of Christ comes out and touches them. They're blessed because God's blessing you. That's why he has you here. That you might be a blessing to other people. And so you you know you don't want to you don't want to cheat that. You want to be filled to overflowing, and the people that you know they want you to be filled to overflowing because it sweetens their lives as well. And it doesn't matter where you are; it doesn't matter what your circle of influence is. The sweetness of Christ touches everything, and it makes everything great. It makes everything desirable and sweet. And that's what God wants to do. And see, that's, that's, why, we, that's why we teach those discipleship classes. That, that's why we're here, gathered together as an assembly, that we might learn how to make Christ known in every single area of life. That's our purpose. And see, that's why, you know, when we... Yeah, you come here, you we teach, we teach, we teach, we teach, we teach. You know, we we had started a church in Michigan. Every year we would have a in, in November, we'd have ministry evaluation Sunday. And we'd take an evening, we'd tell people, just come back and we're just gonna evaluate everything we do. And every November when I would ask this question, who are the people or what kinds of people would be attracted to our church? You know, we want to be relevant. The answer almost always came back the same in one way or another. They said, the only people that would really be attracted to our church are the people that are serious about growing in Christ. They're the only ones. 
You know, well, I mean, that's good and that's bad in that. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's good because the church's mission is to make disciples. Discipleship isn't something we do. It's what we do. It, that's, that's all we're called to do. It's to make people who display Christ in every area of life. Jesus said in Matthew 28, teaching them to observe, to keep, to read, all the things that I've commanded you so that people see Christ in you. That's what we're about, and that's all we're about. And so I would say to the folk, you know, when, uh, I, I, maybe I won't say it to you because I don't want y'all to hate me. It's, it's too late for them. I already told them. But I said, this is what we're about. This is all we're about. If you're not interested in that, well, you know, there are a lot of other churches you can belong to. I mean, in Flint, there are like three or four churches on every corner, right? And not just one, three or four on every corner, right? Every abandoned building winds up having a church in the next two weeks, right? Churches all over the place, and yet the lives of the people aren't changing and it's because Christ is not the center and they're not being taught to display his lordship in every area of life the greatest testimony the greatest witness the greatest tool for evangelism in the world is a life that displays Christ people see Christ in you they want him they want more of him. They want to know how they can have him. And if they're not asking, it may be because they're not seeing. And if they're not seeing Christ, it may be because there's something deficient in my stewardship. Because my calling is to make Christ known. And of course, having said all of that, you know what, what comes next. You know there's going to be a sign-up sheet, right? Saying that, you know, if you want to grow in your discipleship, you want to learn about those six key areas of the Christian faith and deepening them and learn the skills that will allow you to become self-feeding and overcoming, then you'll sign up for our discipleship courses. Notice, Gene, I said courses. <laughs> I shouldn't call Gene's name, I'm sorry. <clears throat> but there are three courses in the discipleship series, Right? And by the time you go through all three, your life will have blossomed so much that people will be coming to faith through you. And that's, that's what we're about anyway. That's stewardship. That's our calling. The last thing is notice that verses 40 and 41, it says here, they decided to kill him, verse 39, and cast him out of the vineyard. He says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said, so it's a play on word in the Greek. He will destroy those wicked men miserably. It's literally, he will miserably destroy those miserable men. There's a lot of misery in the Greek in that passage, that particular verse. But here's the thing. My accountability to God is inevitable. In the end, you and I, we're going to answer to God. Whether we want to or not, whether we decide that we like the idea or not, we're going to answer to him for how we managed our stewardship. 
and whether or not we did the things that he's, he's called us to do. And because that's true, then I want to be about the business. I want to know what he wants and I want to do what he wants. And it, it begins by submitting, surrendering my life to Christ. Matthew 16, Jesus said this. He says to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition. Shoulder your cross and follow me. What's the cross? The cross was an emblem of death. Going to the cross meant dying to yourself. If you want to be my follower, you have to die to yourself. If you try to keep your, your life for yourself, you, he says you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find true life. He asked this question, how do, you, how, how do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul in the process? Is, is anything worth more than your soul? When my brother closest to me, I have three older brothers, and the one closest to me is three years older than me. But when he came home from the military, you know, I, with each of my brothers when they came home, shared the gospel with them. And I was, I was talking to him about receiving Christ, and, you know, he was stalling. He said, well, you know, maybe, no. And uh, I said, well, why don't you want to receive Christ? He said, I'm just not ready to give up my life yet. I asked him, I said, Wesley, tell me, really, just tell me this. What in your life is worth going to hell for? What? I mean, what, what is, do you have that's so valuable that you said, I'd rather go to hell than give this up? No, I'm, I wasn't trying to be cruel. But, I mean, that's just me. That's just how I roll. <laughs> that's my wife. She said, hey, that's how you roll. But, but I, you know, I was serious because, you know, the thought of him perishing was torturous to me. And, and so I asked him that, and he was honest. He said, well, there really is nothing in my life that's worth going to hell for. He said, I just, right now, I just, I don't know. I just, i just not ready to give it up. And I understand, sir. So I said, okay. You know, so I kept praying for him. Well, he eventually gave his life to Christ. But it was after a series of very, very unfortunate choices that resulted in some life altering consequences for him. But, you know, in the end, when you stand before God, you'll be whole. Right? He lost an eye, but when he stands before Christ, he'll have both of his eyes. You know? He, he did, went through some really hard things, but you know, when you stand before Christ, you'll be whole and healed. No sorrow, no sickness, no death. He just needed to make that decision. I wish that he had made it sooner, but I'm glad that he made it eventually. Perhaps some of you are here and you're saying to yourself, well, I'm going to play the waiting game. I'm going to wait until, wait until, wait until. And the thing that you're waiting until when that comes, Satan will just throw something else out there. 
There'll always be something else that you can put off the decision for. Well, let me give you three quick principles. I'm just going to give them to you. So because I said 10 and I've only covered seven. And I know some of you count and you're going to say, Pastor Ray, you cheated us out of three. And I didn't want you to do that. So here they are. Notice that judgment is based solely on stewardship. Judgment is based solely on stewardship. That in this particular um, story, the parable Jesus told, the judgment that the men were going to have dropped on them was because they refused to be good stewards. Notice also that he was going to take away what they had. I lose eventually what I keep selfishly. I lose eventually what I keep selfishly. Like I said last week, you know, you are not going to keep what belongs to God. He will let a collector get it. You aren't going to keep it. I don't want my life to spiral downward because I refuse to give God what belongs to him. And then finally, the closer I get to God, the more I give of myself. If, if God has my heart, then he doesn't ever have to worry about anything else I have. Because that includes the money in my pocket, the time, the talents, the treasures, the temple. It, it, he can have anything he wants if he has my heart. That's why Proverbs twenty three twenty six he says, my son, give me your heart. And let your eyes observe my ways. Give me your heart. Look at what I do. And then walk after me. And that's the path to success. If you have the notes there, you'll see that there is a summary chart. Attitude. Well, it's not a chart, actually. This is the chart. Stewardship can be Indicative of healthy attitudes or unhealthy attitudes. A healthy attitude towards stewardship says, I'm just a manager. And I'm grateful because he's provided me with everything I have. Not that I deserve to earn any of it, including salvation. It's, It's his kingdom. It's not mine. And none of the things that are in my possession will be mine forever. They're just here for a little while, and and then they're gone. Money takes wings, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, and you're here today, and then you're gone tomorrow. As one man said, you know, time is a great healer, but it's a lousy beautician. You know, eventually, no matter how pretty you look, those good looks, you aren't going to have them forever, Right? All those muscles that you have, guys, in your chest, Dunlap's is coming, right? And you know that's where the muscles in your chest drop down to your belly and Dunlap's over your belt. <laughs> Dunlap's is coming for all of us. You are not going to continue to stay as you are. Amen. You can't keep it. And the healthy attitude says, I- I'm here to bring blessing and benefit to others. But the unhealthy steward says, this is mine, I'm the owner, and I'm not grateful, I'm entitled 
this is my kingdom, my planet, and I live my life. The whole world is geocentric, right? Remember Ptolemy saying that the solar system revolves around the earth. And the earth is everything, and everything in life revolves around the earth. No, it doesn't. Copernicus said, no, the solar system doesn't revolve around the earth. It revolves around the sun. And, of course, for us, everything revolves around the Son of God. He's the center of everything. And if I think things are permanent, I will try to hold on to what I can't keep. Jim Elliott says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's salvation. That's a life well lived to God. Instead of pleasing myself, I want to live in such a way as to bring glory and honor to him. That's, That's Christian stewardship. That's the call of God on our lives. Father, thank you so much again for this day and thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your favor, Father. You've given us your word. <clears throat> In your word, we, we recognize how good you've been to us. We are the recipients of, of all of these wonderful things from you. And Father, everything that you allow to come on our plates, you have tasted, you have tested, and you've tempered them. Some of us are going through a Job moment in our lives, and all we can feel right now is the pain and the ache, the sorrow. Father, in the end, you restored Job. In the end, you blessed him far greater than anything you took from him. Because as the song says, you're a good God. It's who you are. And Father, as we go through the difficulties, the challenges, the obstacles, the struggles that we have in our lives... It is gratifying to know that we don't go through them alone. That our Lord Jesus, in all points, tempted like we are, yet without sin. And he's able to be a merciful high priest. Lord Jesus, you understand what we're going through. You understand how we feel. You tasted the dregs of loneliness and heartache and disappointment. And in the end, your body gave out. But of course, three days later, all new. And that's our future. And so, Father, while we occupy until our Lord returns, strengthen us uh, to walk in your will and in your ways in accordance to your word. We'll bless your name. And we'll thank you for all you do for us. Thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.